Well, good morning, church. The message today is entitled Perspective in Troubled Times, and these are troubled times. You know, for me personally, on the best of days, I can struggle with being distracted and being a little anxious. This last week, that distraction and that anxiety has just only ratcheted up. And as I watched the news and as I prepared to preach, knowing that there would be no audience participation, or almost no audience participation, I remember a photo that I saw. It was, a, it was from the pulpit area looking out on the congregation. And out in the congregation, the children's and youth pastors had placed stuffed animals, the big blue cookie monster and, and a monkey like, like our monkey Chongo. And I look out and all I have is our worship team and Pastor Roger. So we're going to try to do the best we can in the midst of that. But this, this day is even exasperated a little more because um, for the last 14 days, my wife and I have been under self-quarantine. This is the first time I've gotten out of the house. And something about traveling through two international airports and that social distance thing, but it's just good to see brothers and sisters. It's just good to see some familiar faces. Can I ask you for a favor this morning? I know you're never supposed to start by asking your congregation for a favor, but can I ask for a favor? In the midst of anxious times, in the midst of distraction, would you pray with me that we would be able to focus in on God's word right now? Would you pray? Father God, I ask that in your kindness, um, your word today would meet a need in my life and in the life of every believer listening to me. Lord, I ask that you would calm our hearts, that you would calm my heart, and that you would help me to truly believe that which I'm about to preach, that you do have perspective in times of trouble, that you do have hope and encouragement, even when all seems dark and lost. Lord, we thank you that that's the message of the cross, and we ask that this week, this holy week leading up to your Death, burial, and resurrection would be more meaningful than maybe any Easter we've ever experienced before, even, even though we're separated, even though we can't come together all in one place. Lord, we ask in your kindness that that would occur. And now I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Um, in May of 1999, I had the privilege to be able to meet and speak with individually one of my heroes for over 20 minutes, just sit and talk with him. Born in 1924 in Mission, Texas, and formed through the Great Depression, this straight-A student, class valedictorian, high school football star, and upon graduation from high school, his enlistment in the U.S. Army Air Force, where he became one of the Air Force's youngest ever co-pilots of a B-17. This man completed 30 harrowing missions over Europe, at times near fatal, including a crash landing in France when his plane ran out of the fuel. Do you know who this is? His name is Thomas Wade Landry. Most people would call him Coach Landry. And what made this meeting so um, encouraging and so, such a blessing was because this child growing up in northern Pennsylvania loved sports and loved watching sports with my dad. And not only was Thomas Landry one of his heroes because of his courage and his service to the country, 
there are some of my earliest memories of football. Um, I remember the defeat and the discouragement when in 1966 and 1967, the Cowboys lost to those dreaded Green Bay Packers. And yet I also remember that my best football memory with my dad shortly before he died was in January 16, 1972, when the Cowboys beat the Miami Dolphins. What a time to meet a hero. But when I met Coach Landry it, 25 years after this, it was with a very different perspective. See, I was, I was working for Chuck Swindoll at Dallas Theological Seminary, the president at that time. And one of my jobs was I would drive the trustees around, and, and Coach Landry was, was one of the trustees. And as I did that, it was a really difficult job for me because the rules were that as I drove, I was to be seen, I was to be helpful, and I was to not speak unless I was spoken to, which is nearly impossible for an extrovert. This was really difficult, but I, but I did that. And on that day, though I knew of his 28 seasons of, as a head coach, though I knew of his 20 seasons in a row, a record still, that non-defeated or non-losing seasons, though I knew of his 250 victories that placed him in the top three with George Hallis and Down Shula, though I knew all these things, that wasn't the perspective. I had a different perspective by that time because, you see, I had become a Christian, and I started to follow Coach Landry and hear about him and his commitment to Jesus Christ. I learned that Coach Landry helped found the fellowship of Christian athletes. Coach Landry, a number of times, I saw him give his personal testimony at a Billy Graham crusade. Coach Landry was there on the board of trustees and even spoke in our chapel at different times. And it was there that I grew to realize that this humble man, a man of great strength, at the same time was my brother in Christ. And so there on that May day in 1999, I looked up and, and behold, there's Coach Landry coming out of the trustee minute, meeting early. Now, I didn't realize it at the time, but less than a year later, he would be dead of cancer. And that's why he left early, because he was feeling sick. And he came down to the parking lot and he came and sought out me. And he sat in my Chrysler minivan and we just talked. We talked like brothers in the Lord. We just spent time together, and I got to tell him a little bit about my dad. My dad, who in 1942, as he graduated from college, ROTC in hand, he went off to Fort Benning, Georgia, and he fought his way through all of World War II, and he loved sports. And Coach Landry talked to me personally. He asked me what my ministry aspirations were. What did I plan to do? You know, Coach Landry had a motto in life and in football. His motto was this, a winner never stops trying. And included in that, Coach Landry said, trying to draw near to the Lord is the best trying you can do. You know, perspective is important in normal times, but it's crucial in times of trouble. And in the midst of the last week's emotional shock and awe. We definitely need comfort. We definitely need God's perspective. It seems like in the past, great changes occurred year to year or month to month. Now it's week to week. No, it's day to day. 
first 200 and then 50 and then no more than 10. And as I look out, there's 10 here. And I just realized that things are changing at an, at an awesome rate. But at the same time, I realized that God's word has perspective, even for times of change. Listen to this, Psalm 46, verses 1 to 3. They remind us that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, and though its waters roar and foam, Though the mountains quake and its swelling pride, Selah, rest, pause. Think about our awesome God who is our refuge and our strength. You know, people are afraid. Um, Earlier this week, while maintaining social distance, I had the opportunity to pray with one of my neighbors who is an army nurse. And he is working right now with individuals that have this virus. And he said to me, he said, you know, Walt, he said, one of, one of the struggles I have is the thought that I might bring this virus home to my family, that I might be the cause of their pain and their suffering. And as we talked, I said, before you leave, let me pray. And we prayed together. That perspective in times of great change in times of struggle, in times when it seems like the whole earth is changing, that perspective of come back to God, spend time with him. People are asking, does God know? Does God know what's going on right now? They're asking, does God care? Does God care about what is happening? Why doesn't God do something? Or they're asking, when will this end? And I want to take you to a short poem of 12 verses which gives perspective to these questions. Please follow along as I read from Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast their cords away from us. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger. He will terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell you of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. O kings, take warning. O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he may not become angry and that you would perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Just some brief background from this psalm. This royal psalm is a celebration of the coronation of God's anointed king, despite opposition from other surrounding nations and the pagans. 
David expressed amazement that the nations would try to overthrow the Lord and his appointed king that was placed on Israel's throne where he would serve as vice-regent to God Almighty on his throne in heaven. And there, in the midst of this, the idea that if Israel's kings would submit to the throne in heaven, they would enjoy the blessing and the power of God. And to the extent that they did that, they experienced and carried out the will of God and the plan for God on earth. Now, even though there's no superscription here that tells us in Psalm 2 that David was the writer, in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, Peter and John are speaking to the Sanhedrin. And there, in the midst of their discussion with him, in the midst of, under divine inspiration, a perspective was given. This, this time, was, there was prone to be great uncertainty. And the raging of the authorities at that time, specifically the Sanhedrin, against the Lord Jesus Christ that resulted in his death, but also his burial and his resurrection. In the midst of that, Peter and John applied this psalm to their day and said, why do the Gentiles rage and why are the people devising a vain thing? This psalm breaks down clearly into four portions. The first one is the rebellion of the nations, verses 1 and three, one to 3. The second is the resolve of the Lord, verses 4 to 6. The third is the reign of the king, verses 7 to 9. And finally, the exhortation to the nations, verses 10 to 12. In the section starting this psalm, the rebellion of the nations, a series of four parallel questions were asked. Listen to them. Why are the nations in an uproar? And why do the peoples devise a vain thing? And why do kings of the earth take their stand? And why do the rulers take counsel together? These four descriptions of who is revolting make it clear that this is the nation and their leaders. This isn't just a few malcontents out there. This is whole nations and all their leaders saying, we're not going to do this. We're going to be in an uproar. We're going to take counsel together how we can do something. And this whole description, who is revolting, revolves around a perspective that God has. And I'll give you that perspective. As I read through this psalm and I'm reading about the nations and their revolt, this isn't just a visceral or an emotional, uh, an unthought-out reaction to God. This is a well-thought-out and planned rebellion, treason against the very mighty king. And in the midst of that, there's a great perspective. 300 years later, the prophet Isaiah, after penning this um, passage in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15. He said, behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and they are regarded as a spot, a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands even though they are like fine dust. And as I read this and I think about the nations and and their rebellion against the Lord, I'm, I'm reminded of the perspective of dust on a scales. Now, I don't know if you've gone out recently. I have not for two weeks. Gone out to my favorite grocery store, H-E-B. But I've gone to the grocery store many times in my life. And many times in my life, I've seen people bring up a bunch of bananas and 
and put them on that conveyor belt, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? And there, in the midst of that, that, this idea that eventually the checker would take those bananas and put them on a scale and weigh them to give the price of the bananas. But in all my times of going to the grocery store and in all my times of seeing produce put on that scale, I've never seen one individual say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I see a speck of dust on my banana. Let me get rid of that before you weigh it. Because you see, a speck of dust is insignificant compared to the weight of the bananas. So perspective number one, I said perspective is important in times of struggle Perspective number one, don't sweat the speck of dust on a bunch of bananas. This is how God observes and this is how God sees the rebellion of these nations. It's just a speck of dust. It's not something to concern yourself. Well, first is what are the nations doing? How and who are they revolting against? They're revolting against the Lord and against his anointed. The Hebrew word here is Hamashiach, the Messiah. The Greek is translated Christos, a Christ. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed and then given special service to the Lord. And in this time, this idea that prophets, priests, are singled out for ministry. But in the book of Hebrews, it teaches something in addition. It says that not only have there been prophets, priests, and kings in the past, but today there is one great prophet, priest, king, all three offices combined. And he's greater than the angels. And he's greater than Moses. And he's greater than all of his creation. In the midst of that, he is much better than the angels. He has inherited a more excellent name. Uh, Hebrews says this, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact reputation of his nature, and he helps, holds all things by the word of his power. And when he has made perfection for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they the name of Son of God. In chapter 5, he goes on to talk about his great priesthood. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And folks, this is very important for us today. Because the book of Hebrews goes on to say that because of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, Hebrews 4, 16, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Or in chapter 7, verse 25, it says this, therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. And just even this thought of the Lord Jesus Christ, his anointed one, the one that is representing God on earth, the one that will bring the kingdom to earth, the idea that anyone would revolt against him, and yet that is what the nations are doing. And by the way, this perspective begs a personal question. Are you drawing near to Jesus Christ the Messiah. 
Are you drawing near to him right now? Do you want to receive mercy and find grace in your time of need? Draw near to Jesus. But not only that, do you want to have Jesus making intercession before the Father for you? Then draw near to Jesus. And normally how we draw near to Jesus is through the study of God's word, through reading and studying the word of God. It's through prayer that we've already done today, but we will continue to do throughout the day. It's through worship, both done today corporately, but also individually in your homes, listening to songs that that spur you on to love the Lord and to worship him. And it's for times when we gather together for the teaching and the preaching of the word. That is how you draw near to him. And in the midst of that, this idea of loving God, you know, this is not a time to be a lone ranger. And as far as that goes, do you know the lone ranger? He wasn't alone. Do you remember who he had with him? His faithful sidekick, Tonto, and his faithful horse, Silver. The lone ranger wasn't alone. Even he needed community. And this is a time when many of us need that. I need that. I'm I'm looking forward, and in the past, I've been able to do some Zoom calls and some Skype and some FaceTime with different family members. And though it's not like getting together with them personally and hugging them, it still is that connection face-to-face. You know, in the midst of this, this reminder of the, the wicked and their attacks on authority, they're revolting against God and against his authority. But the wicked don't just revolt against God and his authority. They revolt against any authority. In, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, the apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, since we have this ministry as received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we've renounced the things hidden because of the shame, not walking in craftiness or adultering the word of God, but by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded their minds of, to the unbelieving, that he might not, they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the very image of God. For we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake. This passage talks about in the church that God has given authorities, that he's given people to shepherd the flock, servant shepherds for the flock of God. That's what we as the pastoral staff would long to do, would love to do. Um, call the church, send us an email. Allow us to get in touch with you and to call you personally and to just pray with you. I've done that a number of times over the last two weeks. But not only that, this is why the book of Hebrews says this, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. Not only is there rebellion against the authority of the Lord, the authority in his church, there's also authority in the nation. The idea that there are national authorities. Romans 13 makes this clear. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, 
For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. You know, right now here at Wayside, we're acting as good citizens, and we're not gathering together in large groups. We're in submission to our governing authorities, and we'll continue. But if those same authorities were to say, you can no longer preach Christ, we would have to follow the example of the apostles in Acts chapter 4, who were summoned and commanded not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot speaking about what we have seen and heard. And folks, for as long as God gives us breath, for as long as God gives me breath, I can't stop speaking about what the Lord has done in my life. You know, this is a time when even with your neighbors, you can give a brief testimonial. Last night, I was walking our, our dog Snickers around our neighborhood, and I met a couple. I've, we'd met them before. We had a brief conversation. But in the midst of that, they said, how are you doing? And just briefly, I was able to say to him, you know what? I, I, I'm struggling a little bit. I have anxiety. I'm, I'm concerned about my family, my wife's parents. I'm concerned about our children our grandchildren. I'm concerned about friends and family. You know, today, right now, serving in a hospital in the Philadelphia area is a young woman that I've known for over 30 years. I taught her in Awanas 30 years ago. And she's a nurse on the front lines. And she's wondering if they will have enough protective equipment and gloves and goggles and masks. You know, this is a time to realize that that there's raging and, and authority against authority against authority in the church, against authority in the nation, but also there's raging against the authority in the home. If you read in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about this authority. And it says to, the, to us, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject one to another in the fear of Christ. And, you know, after saying this, the Apostle Paul says, by the way, when it comes to authority in the home, I'm going to give some specific instructions. He gives instructions to the wives, respect your husbands. He gives instructions to the husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He gives instructions to the children, obey your parents. And finally, he gives instructions to the fathers. Don't frustrate your kids. Instead, instruct them in the word of God. Don't frustrate, instruct. You know, the nation, there has always been raging. I mean, there was raging at the time of David. There was national raging at the time of Jesus through the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. There have been raging throughout history including World War I and World War II. And, and just for a moment, for perspectives, I want to just give you a couple of figures. From December 7th, 1941, the attack on Pearl Harbor, through the end of the war, the surrender of Japan, on August 15th, 1945, 
over 406,000 U.S. service personnel died. An additional 671,000 were wounded and over 130,000 Americans were made prisoners of war. All of this when the U.S. had a population of 131 million people, 40% of what it is today. If there was an equivalent in today's numbers, this would be the loss of life that is sobering. It would be over a million people. That's what we sacrificed as a nation in World War II. There's a couple of differences. At that time, even in the midst of that, it was a slow and steady sacrifice. And while that was happening, the whole nation was united and working together for the defeat of the Axis Empire. That is different now. We're not gathered together. We're not all able to work. Um, That adds to the confusion. And that's why, again, we need this perspective. And by the way, this sobering comparison is not meant to downgrade the loss and the equivalent occurring now through this virus. This idea that we've lost many more people, we don't want to lose anyone. We would love that not one perish but it gives perspective in the midst of the loss. Our country has faced great adversity in the, in the past. Our people have experienced adversity, and we will going forward. But there's perspective in the midst of this. I love the, the next section of this passage. talks about the resolve of the Lord on Mount Zion. And it says this, He who sits, or he who is enthroned, in the heavens, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger. He will terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Mount Zion, my holy mountain. What is God doing? He's the king. And how is the king pictured? He's pictured seated, enthroned, on his throne. And though it doesn't give the full description here, In the book of Isaiah, it talks about this, that I saw the Lord seated on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each one having six wings. With two, they covered the face. With two, they covered the feet. With two, we flew. And the one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you see that imagery? The only thing I can compare this to was a wedding I saw in 1981. Do you remember who that was? It was to Princess Di, Diana of Wales, who wed Charles, the Prince of Wales. And then if you remember any of those photos or you remember that, looking back on that, her wedding at that time was stunning. She had over 2 million people line the streets to see her as she went there to be wed. And over 750 million people watched on TV. Her dress was amazing. Worth in today's figures, tens of thousands of dollars. Ivory silk taffeta with over 10,000 pearls sewn into it. But the thing that caught my attention, and if you look at a picture from this, the thing that might catch yours is her train. This train, not just the veil that goes over the face, but the train that goes down. The train was 25 feet long. And the train weighed over 90 pounds. You know, thinking about that, that's a big train. 
But that's nothing in comparison to the Lord's train. That his fills the whole temple. And by the way, you would never want to be in a battle and have that all around you. Have a train that would encumber you. And yet, the picture that is given here is that in the midst of battle, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of people saying, we will not follow the Lord. The Lord is seated. He is seated on his throne. Not only that, the Lord is laughing. See that? The Lord enthroned in heaven laughs. And he doesn't laugh because he doesn't care. He laughs because this foolishness that they think they, this speck of dust, that they think they can thwart the plans of God Almighty. And then he says they're scoffing. He has them in derision. This is an interesting Hebrew word. And what it talks about is God's active discussing with these nations what he thinks about them. And and the only thing I can compare this to is the idea of trash talking. Now, with that, I played basketball for a number of years, but I never trash talked on the court. And the reason was I didn't have good enough game to trash talk. I loved to play, I enjoyed playing, but I wasn't good enough to put that in anyone's face. By the way, God has game. And when he talks to the nations in derision, it's because that's what they deserve. You know, lastly, he's speaking and he's saying this, I've enthroned this in the past, I've enthroned my king upon Mount Zion, my holy mountain. This idea of even he says, I've put my king on the mountain. Yes, I put it in the past in the form of David. But I've also put my king in charge in the future. And it's so sure to happen that God speaks of it as something that's happening in the past. You know, a second perspective in times of trouble is at a time like this, we need to see the Lord holy, 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 enthroned and lifted up. The Hebrew word here is kadosh, and it means unique or distinct or different or separate. God is not common like us. God is not profane. He's not the same as any other God. He is the Lord God Almighty. And at a time like this, as we remember that, this higher view, the higher view that we have of God, the more clearly we'll see our own sinfulness apart from the Lord. And not only that, the greater thankfulness we should have for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you in these days where some of you are at home, take time and do a study on the glory of God, on his holiness, on his throne. You might go to Revelation chapter 20, where we see that even though we're celebrating this year, this week, the triumphal entry of Jesus in for Easter week, We see in the book of Revelation a second triumphal entry of Jesus into human history. And I saw the great white throne and him who sat about it from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away and there was no place found for this. It goes on to describe that then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And it concludes with this. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you look forward to that day? And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. He who sits on the throne says, behold, behold, 
I am making all things new. The third section of this passage is the reign of the king. I will surely declare the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth, your possession. And you shall break them with a rod or a scepter of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The father's decree is sure and certain. His only begotten son will someday rule on earth. Not only that, the father's gift to his son is the nations, the rule of Jesus, even what he was offered at his temptation. That's a gift that only God can and should give. And then there's a picture of the son's authority and power. It's like a rod of iron shattering earthenware. You know, in my visits to Israel over the years, I've been able to pick up a number of different uh, souvenirs. And one is this replica, this replica of an oil lamp from the time of Christ. And when we talk about the shattering, like with a rod of iron, I have in my office a rod of iron. And if you were here today, I would put this on the floor, I would shatter it, pieces would go everywhere, and then I'd have to clean it all up. But this idea of a great rod of of iron from the hand of the king, shattering just a little piece of pottery, gives us an idea of what Jesus will accomplish when he returns to earth. It gives us a perspective of his authority and his power. And the coming to Christ when he returns to earth is spoken of in Revelation chapter 19. I saw the heavens open, but behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and he wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. His head, there are many diadems. He has a name written on him, which no one knows except for himself. And he's clothed with a robe, dripping in the blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on the white horse. And from his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He may rule over them with a rod of iron. This passage in Psalm 2 is quoted here in the book of Revelation. He treads the winepress of God's fierce wrath. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So with this as perspective, what are the nations to do? The last three verses talk about the exhortation to the nations. Therefore, kings... Show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage. Literally kiss the son that he not become angry with you and you perish in the way. For the wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. In the light of the teaching of verses 1 to 9, this last passage talking about the nation should take note. There's a warning. You better show discernment in the choices you're fixing to make. You better act with wisdom and humility and come under the hand of God Almighty and his anointed king. But there's also a call to worship the Lord. The Hebrew phrase, do homage, means to revere and to prioritize Jesus because you don't want him angry with them. You want to draw near to him. And then lastly, there's a blessing include in the refuge of the, all who are willing 
to take refuge in the Son, coming to him at your weakest of moments and seeing him bless you in the midst of that. You know, as an application point, during the days of this week, would you set aside time to turn off the news and time to tune into the word of God? This is the week, starting with today, Palm Sunday, and through Easter, we will have a series of devotions online. And you can go to waysidechapel.org and, and tap the online studies resource and go there. Today, there's a great, a great video of Pastor Cameron talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus and how amazing it was. You know, when I feel distracted, when I feel anxious, when I feel fearful of what is going on around me, I need to remember that God's perspective. Don't sweat the speck of dust on a bunch of bananas. All this rumbling of the nations, that's all it is. I need to see God high and holy and lifted up and totally in control even when I feel like I have no control. I remember that the sun will someday come and set all things right with his might, and I need to choose to be a willing refugee of the sun. Does God know? Of course he knows. He knows everything. Does God care? Of course he cares. That's why he sent his one and only son to be Messiah, to save now, to save for all eternity. You know, I'm convinced that God is doing something greater than I understand. I'm convinced that during these days, if we as a church reach out to our neighbors while social distancing, if we call and and express concern for them, if we pray for them, I'm convinced that we can have a greater impact than ever because people are listening. People are willing to have a discussion. And that makes this a blessed time. You know, I don't know when this will end. I don't know the certain, the timetable for the defeat of this terrible virus. But from God's word, I know this, that there will come an ultimate end where God is glorified, the sun is lifted up, the nations are subjugated, and God's people are loving and worshiping him. Summarized this way in the book of Acts, repent and return to the Lord so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and he will send Jesus the Christ appointed to you from whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things. There will come a time when all things will be refreshed and restored just like they were at the garden where there will be perfect fellowship between God and man and man and woman. I look forward to that day. And I encourage you to join with me in a, in a prayer of longing for Jesus to come and what he taught his disciples to pray. Would you join me as we recite this prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our trespasses as we forgive the trespasses against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine, O Lord, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.